Good morning, everybody. This morning, our text comes from Exodus chapter 12. I'll be reading the first 13 verses of that chapter. You can follow along on the screen or you can use a Bible that you either brought with you or provided for you in the pew you sit. Please hear the word. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for uh, you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You, make, uh, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some um, of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel on the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roast it on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs in its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet. And you shall in your hand... And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on the, uh, all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you. When I strike the land of Egypt, let's ask the Lord to bless His Word. Father, thank you so much that we have the opportunity to not only to hear this story, but to understand this story in the context of the larger story that explains our individual stories. Help us understand how uh, we are the lost boys and lost girls that have been found that we've been redeemed, that you were willing to pay the high price. Open the word that we might understand in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a time when I was alone, nowhere to go, no place to call home. My only friend was the man in the moon, and even sometimes he would go away too. Then one night as I closed my eyes, I saw a shadow flying high. He came to me with the sweetest smile and told me he wanted to talk for a while. He said, Peter Pan, that's what they call me. And I promise you will never be lonely. Ever since that day, I am a lost boy of Neverland. Usually I'm hanging out with Peter Pan And when we are bored, we play in the woods. 
always on the run from Captain Hook. Run, run, lost boy is what they say to me, away from all of reality. Neverland is home to lost boys like me, and lost boys like me are free. He sprinkled me with pixie dust and told me to believe. Believe in him and believe in me. Together we'll fly away on a cloud of green to your beautiful destiny. As we soared above the town that never loved me, I realized finally I had a family. The stories we tell and the stories we believe give us our identity. And they define our reality. For the longest time, even though Ruth B. wrote that just a few years ago, that's the story that I told myself and the story I believed. And maybe that story is the story you believe and the story you tell about yourself. It is for you this morning, I would like to tell you a different story. I want to tell you about a story out of this particular uh, group of people on the planet that had been slaves for 430 years. Can you imagine the stories they must have told each other and the stories that they must have believed? Nobody they knew had not been a slave. Nobody they had even heard of had not been a slave in Egypt. Imagine what they had to tell themselves about their identity or maybe what was told to them about their own identities and the reality of being a slave in Egypt. This morning I want to tell you a different story about rescuing lost boys and lost girls. But in order to understand that story, you have to understand that God promised that this would happen to them and that he would rescue them. Long before this, long before they could remember 10 generations of Joseph leading them into Egypt to escape a famine, long before his father Jacob, long before his father Isaac, God came to Isaac's father Abraham and made this promise in Genesis 15. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. That word serve means slave. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. You see, I'm trying to give us a context for what's going on here. We're at the tail end of God forcing Pharaoh's hand. Moses has been called. He's uh, come with his uh, brother Aaron. They've come into Egypt to lead them out of a bondage, but Pharaoh won't let them go. So God has given 10 signs to let Pharaoh know that these people are God's people and the God is designed for them to be free and to be rescued And so they've already gone, by the time we pick up here in chapter 12, they've already gone through nine of those plagues. They were horrible. They were were long-suffering. They were things that should have told Pharaoh that God is God and he is not. 
because every pharaoh thought he was God. It took the 10th plague before Pharaoh would let them go. This 10th plague would be the life of their firstborn sons. Actually, it's the firstborn sons of everyone in Egypt. But this last plague is a picture. It's, a, it's where one night in one place at one time, God reaches into the future, the last day of the world, the last day often called judgment day and grabs hold of his justice and brings it to the present to deal with the injustice of the slavery of these people, just as we would love to go to where men and women are being forced into human trafficking, where they're either being used as laborers for almost free in unhumane conditions, or to be used for their bodies for someone else's pleasure. We would love to go and rescue them and bring justice to the injustice. This is exactly what happens now. God reaches into the future and for one night, in one place and at one time, he empties his justice on sin. That's why when we read verses 12 and 13 of our chapter today, it carries so much freight and so much meaning. For he says, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land. God did this first Not because Israel was faithful, not because Israel was kind, not because Israel uh, loved the God. In fact, they had abandoned him. He did it because he is faithful to his promises. If God had decided not to keep this promise that he had given Abraham, then God would have to cease to be God and justice would just be an ideal and never a reality. You see... God didn't just redeem them. He gave them a way to remember. He says, I want you to do this annually. I want you to gather as your family together. That's why it's called Passover. It's a a place where they would recount the story and it always started the same way. This is the bread of my affliction. That is, is a way to begin to talk about that we once were slaves, but we are now free because we've been redeemed. It became the center of their being. It became the their identity, and it became their reality. As they told the story, as they believed the story. But it is replaced. In Christianity, the center of our story is not a Passover meal. It is the story that is told in the Lord's Supper. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And he begins that with this, which has been given for you. And he takes the cup and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood, which has been poured out for your sins. You see, there's a second time that God reaches into the future, the last day, the judgment day, and brings all of his wrath to the present. And instead of emptying it on the sin 
of the Egyptians. In the Lord's Supper, it's to recount the story of when God emptied his wrath on Jesus as our substitute. Both point to the bloody death of an innocent victim, both Passover and Lord's Supper. The Passover and the Lord's Supper both point to the rescue of lost boys and lost girls. And it's this story that has become the center of Christianity where we get our identity and where our reality is defined. This is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper still today. In it, we recount our story of redemption And today we find out that that story came at a high price. Verse 23, which is not one that I read to you, gives a name to this Passover. Hear what it is in verse 23 of the same chapter. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the litanel and he sees the two doorposts covered in blood, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you dead. When we violate God's design for humanity to be in the image of God, to protect the the demonstration of who God is as our creator, when we begin to live our own way as if we are the God, then that unleashes a chaos into our world, disintegration into our lives and relationships and a devastation in our lives. And ultimately, it results in death itself. So when God says that night, the destroyer will come, He is saying, I have, as it were, brought the last day back to your day. And so for that one night and that one time in that one place, eternal justice comes down and unleashes the most powerful and unstoppable force in the universe on sin. You see, We are the most powerful nation in the world. We have the most powerful military in the world that has ever existed. But we are a pop gun compared to the wrath and justice of God. Yes, we can blow the world up into non-existence, but we cannot create it. And we cannot recreate it. Which takes more power to destroy or to make? There is only one way we are going to survive the destroyer. He's revealed to us as a lamb. And we begin in our minds, what? Lambsy mamsy, the little fluffy thing that we see, that we count as we go to sleep at night. No, it's a different lamb. This isn't the first time that you and I have heard the story of a lamb. Back in Genesis chapter 22 is the introduction of a lamb, this time through a father and a son, a father who is very advanced in age, and he has his son, Isaac. Abraham is given a child so late in life. And when Isaac is of age, God comes to Abraham and says, I want you to take your son and sacrifice him, offer him to me. 
And many, many people have heard that and said, man, what obedience. Amazing faith that Abraham had. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. That's such a superficial and shallow interpretation of what happened between Abraham and God. You and I, because we are in the 21st century into the Western world, we think very individualistically, very modern. We see every person stand and fall on his own. That is not the way the Bible was written and it's not the context that our chapter would have been understood. Nobody would have assumed that you stand on your own by yourself. They didn't think that way. They wanted one's family. And so one person's success impacted the whole family. One person's failure was a shame on the whole family and the whole family is held responsible. The closest we come in the United States is whenever there is a mass shooting in a school particularly when that mass shooting is done by a young person. I was listening to a TED talk by Eric, I mean, Eric, Dylan Klebold's mom. And she was talking about what it was like as a family to live in uh, the town in which Columbine High School is, where uh, Dylan and his friend Eric had gone into the high school and killed 12 of their friends, well, at least classmates, and one teacher. She said, Initially, uh, people began to take that horrible shame of that atrocity and began to blame her and her husband and the other children. Began to say, didn't you love him enough? Did you ever tell him you loved him? Did you ever give him a hug? What kind of mother produces that kind of monster? They lost everything. They lost their jobs, they lost their home, they had to declare bankruptcy, they moved away, they changed their name. All because their child had done something so atrocious that it spilled over, the stain was worn by the whole family. That's as close as we get in the American culture to where one person's sin is attributed to the whole. And you might say, that is incredibly unfair and un-American to take one person and that person's sin be attributed to the whole family or the whole community. But let me tell you what you lose if you don't hold to one person's sin uh, infects the whole humanity. And that's this. In Romans 5, it says that through one man, Adam, all man fell. We are all guilty before God, not just because of what we do, but because of what he did. And you say that, that, that's incredibly unfair, but the rest of Romans 5 is about through one man, Jesus Christ, all men can be saved. We lose the assignment of one fault to all we also lose the opportunity for salvation for all through one man. Exodus 22 says that your firstborn belongs to me. 
because your firstborn represents the whole family. So when Isaac, when Abraham is walking up with his son on the mountain, he's not thinking this is an act of obedience. Although it is, he's thinking that my son is being required of me for my sin and my family's sin. You imagine that conversation as they walk up that mountain, Isaac carrying the very wood that will be used as the off, the fire that will be used for the burnt offering, which he doesn't even know that is him. Asking his father, Abraham, Dad, I know we're going up this hill, but we've forgotten something. It's not his first burnt offering. Dad, where's the lamb? You remember what Abraham says over and over again as they walk up this mountain where Abraham's intending to sacrifice his son. He says, God will provide. Isaac, I I don't know what God's going to do, but he's going to provide. In Abraham's mind, he's thinking he's either going to provide or it's going to be you, but he doesn't tell Isaac that. The only hope for Abraham, for Israel, and for us is a lamb. I want to give you these two principles at play here in Exodus 12 that because they are at play, there can be redemption. The first principle is egalitarianism, and that is this idea that the destroyer comes into Egypt not just for the Egyptians. It says that he comes for both the Egyptians and Israelites. It says all men and all beasts. The destroyer brings God's justice on all sin. He can show no partiality. If God lets one sin for one person get away, then God loses his ability to be just. He must hold everyone account for what they have done and for the cosmic treason of humanity. Israel suffered terribly as slaves at the hands of the Egyptians. No one can argue that. But what people don't understand is that Israel didn't just serve Egyptians. They ended up serving the Egyptian gods. They too were stained with the guilt and shame of idolatry. After 400 years, they didn't just become like the Egyptians. They they worshipped the Egyptian gods. That is, the Hebrew slaves were both sufferers and sinners too. We tend to identify with those Hebrews, don't we? We begin to point our bony fingers at the bad guys and what we don't realize is the, the good guys are bad guys too. Paul says, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. All, we don't like that word. Not when it talks about justice. God's justice must fall on all evil including our own. But there's another principle at play, and it's the only one that mitigates the first, that everybody, without partiality, must pay. And the second principle is substitution, that God provides a lamb, a representative, a substitute in our place, in the place of the firstborn son who represents the the sins of the whole family. The destroyer must empty it on someone. The destroyer looks into the windows and sees the same idols that he sees in the Egyptian homes. But he passes by every Jewish home because there was a substitute, a lamb that was 
slaughtered and eaten and burnt the remains. And the blood was put on the doorpost so that God, the destroyer would come by and see that God's justice has been paid in full by that representative. Because in that morning, that next morning, in every home in Egypt, there was either a dead son or a dead lamb. For God to be just, all evil must be paid. But that's not the last chapter, is it? We know the rest of the story. Even though God delivers them that night, it's not the ultimate deliverance that they need. We know that because they will continue to sin. It won't be but hours after Passover that they begin sinning and grumbling again. The debt of sin must be paid once and for all. They need a deeper and a forever deliverance. They're still slaves. They are still the lost boys of Neverland. A higher price would have to be paid. On on the night in which Jesus is betrayed, he says, this bread is the bread of my affliction. What Jesus is saying at the Lord's Supper is that I'm going to suffer to give you the ultimate freedom. That unleavened bread that's at the Passover meal that was also at the Lord's Supper, says it, he says it appoints to my body, which has been broken for you. And those four cups of wine point to my blood being poured out for you. And at the Lord's Supper, there's no lamb at the table because the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, is at the table with them. No lamb on the table, but Jesus is at the table. That's important. But one more thought, and that is we have to look at the ransom that was paid. One more thing. God did not just pluck the Jews out of Egypt. A price had to be paid for their freedom because the Jews deserve God's wrath just as much as the Egyptians. A ransom, a price for sin and death was paid. And the way that Peter puts it in his letter ties all this together. Passover, the Lord's Supper, the sacrifice of a lamb and the blood poured out of Christ when he says this, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without a blemish or spot. And you might be thinking in your mind, or at least you know if you go and tell this story of a substitute, why doesn't God just forgive Isn't he God? Can he do anything? Why can't he just forgive us for what we have done? Isn't it his job to forgive? And all that does is show how shallow our view of sin is, that it's really not that bad. It's not that big a deal. We don't feel the weight of it. And because we don't feel the weight of sin, we don't treasure the ransom that was paid Not only do we owe God for our sin of the past, we continue to assault God with our sin in the present. 
And this is true on your worst day, and it's true on your best day. Imagine, just for a moment, your worst day, where the guilt and the shame haunts you for what you have done or what has been done to you. It threatens to hound you to your grave. It is for that moment that Christ dies. It is for that moment the ransom is paid. At your worst, God gave his best. No doubt, no debt is too great that this price cannot cover. You can dream all you want on the worst sins of the world and Christ can cover them from the cross. Now imagine your best day when everything goes right and everything is good and you have been very obedient and yet your sin still deserves God's destroyer. His justice has to extract its payment for him to remain just. But in order for him to be the justifier, Christ must pay. Either you will pay, either I will pay, or Christ will pay, but someone must pay. And it is Jesus who came into this world and named my sin. He reckoned the debt. He condemned my wrong, and after he passes judgment on me, he then turns and replaces me in the dock to serve the sentence. My judge becomes my substitute. He receives my sentence and pays the debt for me. He sets me free, free from the penalty the power and the presence of sin. That's the price of redemption. It's not something that you and I can earn. It's something that we receive by faith alone. It's something that where our identity comes from and it's what shapes and defines our reality. As we come to the focal point, it's a story. It's the story we tell. It's the story we believe. It's one of the reasons why God doesn't require you to go to seminary so you can learn how to argue someone or to receive apologetics from Ligonier or from Ravi Zacharias. How in the world could he hold you accountable for the proclamation of the story? Because it's just telling the story particularly to the lost boys and the lost girls of Neverland. Our city is literally filled with people who think no one can hear their affliction. Their pain and their suffering goes unnoticed. And yet we have the story that God hears our cry. He sees our affliction and he knows us by name. And he has sent a substitute into this world to replace us in our stead, to set us free. I know as people who come to EP, you believe this story. You tell this story to yourself, but do we tell this story to people who don't know it? And do we ask them to believe? 
Can I give you this story in another, just another way to remember it? Charles Wesley put it this way. Longed my imprisoned spirit lay. Fast bound in sin and nature's night. We don't talk that way much anymore, do we? That my sin is bound me into darkness. But without that, the next two lines don't sound so good. Unless you're sitting in darkness, bound and as slaves to sin and death. He goes on and he says, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Do you tell that story to yourself? Has that given you your identity? Has it shaped your reality? Has it shaped your reality so much that you now tell it to others who feel a different story defines them? A different story is their reality. Let's pray. Father, our hearts break as Ellie shares the stories of so many people that she saw and experienced And where at work they hear story after story of bondage and brokenness. And it breaks our hearts. But Father, allow it to break our hearts to the point where we do something. Where we work for justice now. And even though, as Ellie told us, it it won't all come in our time, but it will come. We are as assured of their freedom as we are of our own, that all will be made right. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that that becomes true in our lives and in our city, our country, and the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.